Now let's look at Revelation 9, and let's read the first 12 verses and think about the next trumpet. Revelation 9, verse 1. And the fifth angel blew his trumpet, and I saw a star fallen from heaven to earth. And he was given the key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit, and from the shaft rose smoke, like the smoke of a great furnace, and the sun and the air were darkened with the smoke from the shaft. Then from the smoke came locusts on the earth, and they were given power like the power of scorpions of the earth. They were told not to harm the grass uh, of the earth or any green plant or any tree, but only those people who do not have the seal. Remember we talked about the seal back in chapter 7. They do not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were allowed to torment them for five months, but not to kill them. And their torment was like the torment of a scorpion when it stings someone. And in those days, people will seek death and will not find it. They will long to die, but death will flee from them. In appearance, the locusts were like horses prepared for battle. On their heads were what looked like crowns of gold. Their faces were like human faces, the hair like women's hair, and their teeth like lion's teeth. They had breastplates and like breastplates of iron. And the noise of their wings was like the noise of many chariots with horses rushing into battle. They have tails and stings like scorpions, and the, uh, their power to hurt people for five months is in their tails. They have as a king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. The first woe has passed. Behold, two woes are still to come. All right, let's make sense of this fifth trumpet. This is a very helpful quote from Grant Osborne. This is one of the more bizarre descriptions of the book, and one dare not take the details too far. He's just saying, this is weird. Be careful with what you do with this passage. Uh, trumpet number five, my understanding, and I think, honestly, the majority of commentators. That's not to say anything's right. But the majority of commentators say that this is a host of demons who are sent to torment those who dwell on the earth. They're not sent to kill them, but they're sent to torment them. The question is, uh, who is the object of their torment? It's those who do not have the seal. Those who don't have the seal. Um, when we talked about the seal, we're talking about the saints in heaven. Um, when we talk about this trumpet, we're talking about those who don't have the seal. That's those who dwell on the earth. So, how do we know that they're demons and not something else? Because you can get on Google, on your phone right now, and you can find about 8 million websites that tell you that what we're reading about here are Apache Tomahawk helicopters. You're reading about war machines. And then we're about to read about some horses at the end of chapter 9, and those are really tanks. And they're probably Russian, or if we're not Russian today, they're Iranian. Or if they're not Iranian tomorrow, they're whatever, whatever, on and on. All sorts of speculation about what this is in real life. So first of all, before I give you some answers, whatever this means, whatever you think these scorpion demon locusts are, it's got to have a real reference to the people who got this book in the first century. 
has to mean something to them. This means nothing to them. Absolutely nothing. So I just don't think that this is in any way, shape, or form within the realm of possibility of what John intended to communicate to the original readers of the book. This makes no sense to them. And we talked about hermeneutics not long ago on a Wednesday night. Your job in interpreting a passage of the Bible is to understand what is the author trying to communicate. Not to read into it what you want to find, but to understand what he is trying to communicate to you, the reader. So I don't think that this is what John was trying to communicate. I think it is demons, and here's my reasons. I've got seven of them. That's a good revelation number. Seven reasons. Number one, there's this reference to the star. Uh, 9-1, a star fallen from heaven to earth. Uh, I'll be honest with you. I can take you to my office and open a commentary that says that this star is a good, holy angel. I don't think that's what it is. Because it is fallen. It's not sent. Usually in the book of Revelation, when good angels are involved, they are sent on a mission. I think what this is talking about, even though it uses the word angel and we think angel means good, I think it's talking about a spiritual being that we would call a demon, an evil angel or a fallen angel. And I gave you the reference to Isaiah 14, Luke 10, Revelation 12. I think these all indicate that this star, this is my interpretation, this star fallen is Satan himself. That's what I think is being described in the vision. Reason number two that this is a demonic invasion is the word abyss. He's given this key to the shaft of the bottomless pit. He opened the shaft of the bottomless pit. The word in some translations is abyss. We're talking about Sheol. We're talking about the realm of the dead. We're not talking about a place you want to be. We're talking about a terrible, horrible place of judgment and death. So the abyss is in view. Thirdly, scorpions and locusts. There's a lot of passages in the Old Testament where God uses locusts as judgment. And Jesus tells his disciples something curious in Luke 10. He says, you're going to tread on scorpions. You're going to go tread on scorpions. I don't think that means you're going to walk around West Texas stomping on scorpions, although you can do that if you want to. I don't think that's what he's talking about. I think he's talking about spiritual conflict in that passage, and that's an image that's used uh, other places in the Bible. Uh, reason number four. It says that they were given or they were allowed. This is what we've talked about before, the divine passive. The Greek word is adothe autoi. It was given to them. This is God not being the direct cause of evil, but allowing evil to be carried out. God's sovereign over it, but he's not immediately responsible for it. And it's used throughout the book of Revelation for persecutions against God's people, for evil, for wickedness, and it's used here uh, for these scorpion locusts, whatever they are. Uh, number five, they're told not to harm the plants, which is what locusts do. Don't harm the plants. So I think what he's saying is it's not real locusts. You understand they're not real locusts. They're not coming to eat the plants. Don't worry about the plants. You need to worry about yourself. They're coming uh, as spiritual forces of evil from the heavenly places. That's Ephesians 6. Uh, their job is torment, which reminds us of the book of Job. Satan's role in tormenting Job. Job chapter 1 and 2. 
And then lastly, they have a king named Abaddon or Apollyon or Destroyer. And I gave you a reference here to Proverbs 30. Proverbs 30 talks about the differences and how God has created different animals. And it says, locusts don't have a king. They don't have a, there's no queen bee locust. It's just an observation in the book of Proverbs. These locusts have a king, and his name is Destroyer, Abaddon, Apollyon. So I add all that up together, and I say, I don't think he's talking about real locusts. And I don't think he's talking about helicopters. He's talking about demonic forces of evil that are tormenting God's people. And I think it's what you see in the next trumpet. So you remember the pattern? Four plus two plus an interlude plus one more. So that means these two go together. We saw the first four. First four directed against creation. Now these two go together. So we'll pick up in verse 13. The sixth angel blew his trumpet, and I heard a voice from the four horns of the golden altar before God sang to the sixth angel who had the trumpet, release the four angels who are bound at the great river Euphrates. So the four angels who had been prepared for the hour, the day, the month, and the year were released to kill a third of mankind. The number of mounted troops was twice 10,000 times 10,000. I heard their number. And this is how I saw the horses in my vision. And those who rode them, they wore breastplates the color of fire and sapphire and of sulfur. And the heads of the horses were like lion's heads. Fire and smoke and sulfur came out of their mouths. By these three plagues, a third of mankind was killed by the fire, the smoke, the sulfur coming out of their mouths. For the power of the horses in their mouths and in their tails, for their tails are like serpents with their heads, and by means of them they wound. We'll stop right there and pick up verse 20 and 21 in a minute. So trumpet number six. I gave you a, a kind of a long quote from Schreiner, but I think it's helpful connecting material. In the fifth trumpet, we see unbelievers longing to die because of their misery. The sixth trumpet and the second woe show us people dying because of demonic activity. This demonic activity is not visible to us, of course, since demons use ordinary means to accomplish their purposes. John is not describing modern weaponry, nor does he depict literal horses. His point is that this army is no ordinary army. It isn't a human army at all. He uses symbolic language to describe a demonic horde inflicting death on human beings, and the death in view is fundamentally spiritual death, separation from God, leading to physical and eternal death. Demons destroy human beings, especially through their false teaching that separates unbelievers from God. So, trumpet number six introduces four angels who I take to be demons, just like the demon we saw in trumpet number five, an army of 200 million demons who destroy people through false teaching. I think that's the emphasis of this sixth trumpet trumpet number five the emphasis is on these demons want to torment people and make them miserable however they do that trumpet number six the emphasis on the death that they bring and the power of these uh, demons in this sixth trumpet is in their mouth um, let's just be clear about the woes and thinking about these two groups of demons. Revelation 8.13 says, Woe, woe, woe. Three woes. We've seen the first four trumpets. Now we've got three more. So we've got three woes. 
9, 1 to 12 is the fifth. Scorpion locusts who I take to be demons. Revelation 9, 13 to 21, the sixth. There's these four angels who release 200 million demons. I take that all to be an evil demonic horde. And then Revelation 11, 15 to 19, the seventh trumpet, we'll get to that next month, signals the return of Jesus. And that's where we come to the rumblings and the peals of thunder and the earthquake and all the rest. And that is when Jesus is coming back. It's very clear in Revelation 11 that that's what, uh, what's in view. So two verses we left off. This is the most shocking verses in the whole passage. Revelation 9, 20 to 21. The rest of mankind who were not killed by these plagues did not repent of the works of their hands, nor give up worshiping demons and the idols of gold and silver and bronze and stone and wood, which cannot see or hear or walk, nor did they repent of their murders or their sorceries or their sexual immorality or their thefts. So the first six trumpets, while horrific in nature, do not produce repentance among those who dwell on the earth. We talked about the spiritual smoke detector. The response of those who dwell on the earth is to yank it off the ceiling, smash it on the floor, and say, we don't want anything to do with you. They do not repent of all their wickedness, despite all these horrific things that are poured out uh, in terms of God's judgment. Is that not exactly what you see in the book of Exodus with Pharaoh? You keep thinking, surely this one's going to convince him. Surely the darkness, surely the frogs, surely the Nile, surely none of it convinces him. He hardens his heart, and God hardens his heart, and in the end he doesn't repent, and God's judgment is poured out fully. It's the exact same pattern that you see here, and it shouldn't surprise us because there's parallels all the way through with the trumpets and the plagues of Egypt. So, that's eight, and that's nine. I want to give you some concluding thoughts, application thoughts, and I want to tell you what I've done in this last section. Intentionally, in this last section, I gave you a lot of quotes, and we're going to read some of these last section, uh, some of these quotes in this last section. I intentionally pulled these quotes from all the commentaries I could, people who disagree about a lot of the things that I just laid out for you. So these people, in giving us application, may not arrive at this point exactly the way we did in interpreting all the details, and I know we haven't talked about every single detail in these passages, but I'm telling you, I think these big ideas and these big principles are sound, regardless of how you sort out all the, all the scorpions and the horses and all the rest of it. So, truth number one, the trumpets remind us of the sovereignty of God. Neither Satan nor his evil servants can any longer unleash the forces of hell on earth unless they are given the power to do so by the resurrected Christ. And I just remind you of the very first verse we read tonight, Revelation 8.1, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal. He's unfolding all of this. Remember the initial vision in chapter 5? There's a scroll. No one can open it. Who's worthy? Nobody's worthy. There's only one worthy. Jesus is the only one who has the authority to break these seals. Jesus is the one who opens the seventh seal, which moves us into the seven trumpets. Jesus is sovereign over all of this. Uh, look at chapter um, 8, verse 3. I just want you to see what this looks like in English. 
another angel came and stood at the altar with golden censer, and he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints and the golden altar before the throne. That's the sovereignty of God giving someone else authority or a job or a responsibility or a role. And God gives this authority to his angels and he gives this authority to forces of evil as it unfolds in chapter 8 and chapter 9. So this next quote is from Schreiner. In this text, we see a fascinating confluence of divine sovereignty, demonic agency, and human misery. Ultimately, God is sovereign, even over the actions of the devil and the demons. We see the malevolence of the devil and demons and the anguish they bring in the lives of human beings. At the same time, God is sovereign over the torment that human beings feel. It's his punishment on the ungodly. Yet he uses the devil and demons as his agents in inflicting misery. Still... God's role in what happens to humans is dramatically different from that of the devil and demons. For God always does what is holy and just, while the devil and demons are filled with hate and spite. Now, before I give you the next point, I want to acknowledge something. If you say that God is sovereign over all that mess we just read in Revelation 8 and 9, what you're saying is God is intentionally inflicting horrific things on mankind you are saying that and some people have a problem with that a lot of people today would say i don't like that kind of god (laughs) if there's a god and he's doing that kind of stuff i don't want anything to do with him he may be sovereign he may be in control of all of it but that's what if he's if that's what he's going to do with his power i don't want anything to do with him so point number two the trumpets remind us of the righteous judgment of God the righteous judgment of God James Hamilton if you think God is overreacting your view of God is too small and by implication your view of human sin is pitiful when you have a right view of God and his holiness he's holy 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 and you understand the horrors of human rebellion this doesn't look like overreaction to you It actually looks like kindness to you because God God is blaring the spiritual smoke detector saying, wake up, pay attention. This is what's real. He's trying to get the attention of these people and in their hardness of heart, they don't respond uh, in that way. So this is the righteous judgment of God. Number three, God's judgment on the world does not result in salvation Only God's grace results in salvation. That's a biblical truth you've got to wrestle with all the way through the Old Testament into the New. It is not the judgment of God that results in the salvation of sinners. It is the grace of God that results in the salvation of sinners. And let me just give you practically where we sometimes go wrong with this. Sometimes we know people who are experiencing the discipline or the judgment of God, or maybe they're experiencing the natural consequences for their sin, and we say, I hope this gets their attention. God's judgment does not save people. It's righteous, but it doesn't save people. God's grace is what saves people. And you see that reflected here in these horrors of these trumpets being poured out And in the end, they just harden their heart and they don't give up any of their wickedness or their immorality. Those who dwell on the earth. Those who don't have the seal of God. 
those who have not put their faith in Jesus Christ. So Robert Mounts, very different view of Revelation than the guys I've just quoted. Even these two plagues, horrible and destructive as they are, fail to deter the survivors from continuing their worship of demons. Unrestrained by the plagues, they continue their practice of idolatry, bloodshed, sorcery, sexual immorality, and theft. Uh, next, the trumpets involve both suffering and sealing. There's suffering involved here and there's sealing here. And the distinction we're making is that it's the seal of God that protects the people from trumpet five and six. Right? The first four poured out on creation are things that we experience, all of us, human beings who live on the earth. All people experience the, the effects of the fall and natural disasters and sickness and illness and death and all the rest of it. It's the same idea you saw in the seals. Those first four seals are poured out on all of creation indiscriminately. It's the consequence for sin in a fallen world. You see it here in the first four trumpets. But it's the next two, five and six, this demonic oppression that believers are protected from. They don't experience that like those who dwell on the earth. And I just make this point quickly, not to stir up anything, but if you want to take these locust, scorpion, horses with tails and all the rest, and you want to come up with something other than demons, and smart people do that, okay? Not like dumb people do that. Smart people do that. They say, no, it's something else. It represents something else. You've got to have a way to explain how is it that they don't impact those who have the seal. Somehow you've got to make sense of that, and it just can get a little bit clumsy and awkward to sort that out in real life. Look, I've read the Left Behind books, so I know how they sort it out. And when you read it, I think, I don't know if I buy that or not. You might buy it. That's okay. It'll all get sorted out in the end. I'm just telling you, somehow you've got to make this distinction of why is it that these two, five and six, only have an impact on those who dwell on the earth. And it's God's judgment on them. And it's not affecting those who have the seal of God, those who are believers. So there is suffering and there is sealing. Um, under that heading of suffering and sealing, we could just acknowledge... It's not like God keeps his people from all suffering. Because we still live in this world that is a feeling the impacts of all of these trumpets being blown on it. And all these seals being broken on it. So the judgment of God on creation is something we experience even as believers. We're not immune from that. Next. This one is the big one. As I've thought about it over the last week and especially this week. The trumpets show us the true nature of evil the true nature of evil Hamilton says we have a great need to see evil for what it is this is I think the, the most valuable thing you can take away from Revelation 8 and 9 Okay, the most valuable thing you can take away is not is this sequential chronological or is it recursive cyclical like, I think you need to sort that out, but that's not the most important thing. The most important thing is not to say exactly I know what this thing is. 
the most important thing is to understand that John is showing you the true nature of evil. Revelation is apocalypse. It's revealing. It's taking what looks to your eyes to be one thing, and it's pulling back the curtain so that you can see, oh, it's not actually what I thought it was at all. It's taking the glory of Rome, a.k.a. Babylon, that looks so amazing. And it's pulling back the curtain and saying, actually, it's like a beast and a prostitute. That's what Rome's really like. That's what Babylon's really like. may not look that way to you, but that's what Revelation does. It pulls back the curtain. It's looking at these churches that look so pitiful. These seven churches are a mess. Even the good ones look horrible from the outside. And it's pulling back the curtain saying, those of you who look good, you're not so good. And those of you who look pitiful, you're actually doing exactly what I want you to do. It doesn't look like that from outward appearances, but that's what Revelation does. It's apocalypse. It's revealing. This is what John's doing in 8 and 9. He's pulling back the curtain on evil, and he's showing you what it really looks like. And it's horrific, right? It's these scorpion, demon, horses, locusts that are tormenting people and killing people. It's horrible, okay? So real-life example. You guys look like the kind of guys that spent your weekend watching the Grammys, right? Yeah, Grammy guys. So in the Grammys, I didn't watch the Grammys either, but you've heard all the dust-up and stuff about this song and performance where you have two transgender, transgressive musicians dressing up in red devil costumes, and it's a big satanic joke on the stage, okay? So that's what happens at the Grammys. And I have seen post, post, yeah, uh, Willie's got it recorded. You can go over and watch it on DVR. You've seen post after post after post of people this week saying, Christians need to wake up. This is, they're doing it right in front of our faces. Da, 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 da. This is horrible. When are we going to draw a line? When are we, da, 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 on and on and on. And what I'm saying is, as I'm thinking about Revelation 8 and 9, I don't need anybody to pull back the curtain on that performance. That's really obvious, okay? And it should shock you, and it should bother you, and it should make you want to just, I don't know. It's terrible. It's terrible. But I don't need anybody to pull the curtain back on that. There's a million things in our culture that people need the curtain pulled back on that look culturally okay. It's not as flagrant and openly transgressive as that kind of mess. Okay? It looks more like a Disney movie with great animation and a wonderful soundtrack that your kids sing over and over and over after hearing it one time, and they want to watch it a million times, and it doesn't say anything openly about anything religious or spiritual. It doesn't say God is terrible. There's not a dancing demon. They're not sacrificing babies on it. But underneath it, somebody needs to pull the curtain back and say, this is what it's really like. It may be packaged in a way that is presentable and that you will swallow it and you'll let your kids swallow it. But let's pull back. That's what John's doing in 8 and 9. Let's pull back the curtain on evil and let me show you what it really is like. It looks good on the outside. Rome looks great. The imperial cult looks amazing. 
All these things, benefits for you, social acceptability, business connections, it all looks great. It looks like a great deal. Too good to pass up. Pull back the curtain. It's rotten on the inside. That's what Jesus did to the Pharisees, right? You guys look great on the outside. Whitewashed tombs, man. Spotless. Power washed the whole thing. On the inside, pull back the curtain. Dead men's bones. And the curtain that's being pulled back here in the true nature of evil ties back up to what we said a minute ago uh, when we talked about, where were we talking about this? I don't remember. Um, Maybe it was one on the previous page. We'll just make the point here. I want you to take your Bible and look at Deuteronomy 32. I just want you to hear these verses. I'm not going to preach on them. I know we're getting close on time. Deuteronomy 32. Deuteronomy 32, 16 says, They stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods. To gods they have never known. To new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you, and you forgot the God who gave you birth. The whole thing is packaged on, we just have new gods. And Moses pulls back the curtain. It's actually the Lord speaking through Moses and says, what you're actually doing is sacrificing to demons. You can package it however you want to package it. We just got a new God. Great. What it really is is a demon. That's what stands behind your idolatrous, misguided worship. Look at Psalm 106. Psalm 106. We'll start in verse 34. They did not destroy the peoples as the Lord commanded them. They mixed with the nations and learned to do as they did. They served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and daughters to the demons. Okay, that's pulling back the curtain. What the Hebrew people thought they were doing is serving other gods. And God pulls back the curtain one layer and says, no, they're actually idols. They're not gods. And he pulls it back again and says, really, behind them, you're serving demons. There's a demonic element to this idolatry. You say, well, that's just the Old Testament. God was grouchy in the Old Testament. Look at 1 Corinthians 10. Church in Corinth, all their mess with the temple prostitutes and the meat in the temples and the feasts and the drunkenness. 1 Corinthians 10. We'll go to verse 18. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices, participants in the altar. What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. I do not want you to be participants with demons. When you worship little g gods, fake gods, substitute gods, It's not just nothing that you're worshiping. And Paul goes back and forth in Corinthians. At times he says, look, these gods are nothing. 
they're nothing. And he makes the point that they're nothing. But then he also says, you do understand that behind the nothing, there's something. There's a spiritual force at work here. And that's true if you're going to the temple of Aphrodite in Corinth. That's true if you live in the United States of America and you worship God, sex, power, reputation, whatever. Those things are nothing in a sense. And you do understand, Paul would say, there is something behind that nothing. There's demonic forces of evil. That's Revelation 8 and 9, pulling back the curtain. It may look culturally great, cool, popular. It may win you uh, awards at the Grammys. It may sell you records. It may help your business. But you pull back the curtain, and it's horrific. 1 Timothy 4.1, just to belabor the point. The Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teaching of demons. Teaching of demons. The trumpets show you the true nature of evil. They expose it. They reveal it. They apocalypse it. This is what apocalypse is. Apocalypse is not about giving you a roadmap for the end times. It's about showing you what is real even though you can't see it with your eyes, showing you the true nature of evil. One last truth, end on a positive note. In the midst of God's righteous judgment on those who dwell on the earth, the people of God have the privilege of prayer. The privilege of prayer. So I'm going to give you some Eugene Peterson quotes here. And uh, he certainly has a different view of Revelation than a lot of these guys I've set out before you tonight. Uh, but I think he's spot on when it comes to this idea of prayer. The apocalypse is a fusion of vision and prayer. When the seventh seal is open, there is silence in heaven for about half an hour. A climax has been reached. Silence prepares the imagination to receive an incredible truth. While conflicts raged between good and evil, prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige. Why didn't they have mental breakdowns? Why didn't they cut and run? They prayed. It was in order to hear those prayers that there was silence in heaven. Prayer is language used to address God, not explain Him or report on Him. It's answering speech. The task of the gospel is to move us away from talking about God to talking to Him. True knowledge of God is never knowledge about God. It is always relation with God. We're surrounded with noise, telephone, radio, television, stereo, cell phone. Messages are amplified deafeningly. The world is a mob in which everyone's talking at once and no one's willing or able to listen, but God listens. He not only speaks to us, he listens to us. His listening to us is an even greater marvel than his speaking to us. Silence in heaven for about half an hour. God listens. Everything we say, every groan, every murmur, every stammering attempt at a prayer, this is all listened to. Heaven quiets down. It is an amazing truth that God speaks to his people in the scriptures. That the Holy Spirit inspires the Bible so that we can hear the voice of God when we open this book. It's an equally, and in some sense, as Peterson says, a more amazing truth that God listens to us. 
Not like a counselor you have to pay them to listen to you. Not like that friend that won't ever shut up at lunch or over at your house. They just want to talk, 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 talk. God listens to the prayers of his people. And they're suffering greatly. That's clear from the book of Revelation. These judgments are being poured out on all of creation. That affects all human beings. There's demonic forces of evil at work in the world. There's incredible persecution being ranged against the people of God. You saw that in the seven letters to the seven churches. Many of them are actively facing persecution for their faith in Jesus. And in the midst of that, it looks like this tiny, small, powerless, ragtag bunch of people are just going to get wiped off the face of the earth. And Revelation 8 and 9 pulls the curtain back and says, no, those people are praying. And God actually hears their prayers. He knows them. He knows what they need. And all of their requests are being brought before his throne, which is an amazing, amazing thought. You and I live in a world where Christians are increasingly being marginalized. And the Christian faith is increasingly being labeled as hate speech. Or that's not acceptable. We, we don't want anything to do with that kind of God. All sorts of attacks against the Christian faith. And we're not used to that in the United States of America. It's disconcerting to us. It's unsettling to us. And it bothers us. And we find ourselves saying, oh, I wish we could just go back to the old days where it wasn't like this. Well, there's been good days in church history and there's been bad days. And through all of those days, God's people have had the privilege of hearing from God in his word and had the privilege of God hearing them when they pray. So that's a, a positive note to end on with Revelation 8 and 9. Uh, in a month, we'll pick up 10 and 11, which are connected with what we talked about tonight. So let's pray uh, with the confidence that God hears us. Father, we love you. Uh, we're grateful for your word that you have spoken to us. Grateful for the book of Revelation. And Father, there's things in these chapters that are hard to wrap our minds around. There's things that are unsettling. Uh, things that are frightening, uh, but we take comfort in the fact that you are clearly in control of everything that happens in these chapters. The good, the bad, the ugly, all of it. You are completely sovereign over everything. What a privilege that we can hear from you in these chapters, and what a privilege that we can come to you in prayer knowing that you hear us. We thank you for this vision that John had of Silence, just a part of the vision where nothing happened except prayer. And John has this revelation, this revealing that you hear the prayers of your people. Whether we think that they make it all the way to heaven, whether we feel like we're communicating with you, Lord, you hear our prayers. When we don't even know what to say, you hear our groans and our cries. Uh, Lord, we thank you for that. We pray that. Uh, you would give us eyes to see the true nature of evil when it's obvious in our world and when it's not so obvious. Uh, give us wisdom to see what's really happening in this world. Uh, keep us by the power of your spirit. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.